You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Gwen. Hi, all. This is J.L. Collins. This is Paul Thompson, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Cockroaches, rats, and mold. No, I'm not discussing the plagues of Egypt. I'm talking about some of my obstacles in landlording over the last year. And that's just the start of it. Not to mention that I finally decided to sell a few units and surprise, there is a price to all that depreciation I took. The taxes are brutal. Would you blame me if I'm starting to question the age-old wisdom about real estate? That it always goes up? Hey everybody, before we jump into this conversation about real estate, I just discovered a new startup, and I'm really excited about it, and I wanted to share it with you guys. Masterworks is democratizing access to the exclusive $6 trillion world of art investing. By the way, that's four times larger than every crypto combined. Naturally, there's a ton of demand and a long wait list. They've already signed up more than 200,000 users, but I've got 85 passes to skip the wait list for my listeners. Head to masterworks.io slash EAI to secure your spot. That's masterworks.io slash EAI today. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. JL Collins is the author of The Simple Path to Wealth and his forthcoming book, How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable, questions the current wisdom about property ownership. Paul Thompson is a real estate investor and entrepreneur and the creator of the My Freedom Foundry community and host of the Ready Investor One podcast. And Gwen Mers is the creator of the Fiery Millennials blog and platform, as well as a financial independence, but maybe not retire early enthusiast. Jail Paul, Gwen, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Paul, I want to start with you. I know your story a little bit. I'm familiar. You used to be a co-host with me here, but for the audience, tell us about your first real estate buy that wasn't for personal use, your first investment real estate buy, how long was the time from you thought about buying real estate to your actual first purchase? It's probably within three months once I decided to do it to to when I actually purchased that first property. And that was in the year 2015. And I think the numbers are, I bought it for 30, put 10 into it and refinanced that all out and had a property that at the time was worth about $55,000 and rented for about six fifty dollars in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was a three-bedroom, one-bath. Now, you mentioned a three-month time period, but how long had you been thinking and studying real estate before you got to that point? None. <laughs> From when I decided that, okay, I'm going to try this real estate thing to purchasing my first property was about three months. Wow. That's pretty quick. JL, let's talk about your first property. The one you talk about in the book it wasn't necessarily meant to be a business. How much research did you do before plunking down money for your first humble abode? Well, let's put it this way. The first chapter in that book is called Impossibly Naive. And that means I did, I did zero research. If possible, I did even less than Paul. Gwen, let's look back to your landlording days. Can we, can we not? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that is the reason why we're here today to talk about real estate. Did you feel a lot of peer pressure? Was it like, I'm part of this community, the financial independence community. I know all these entrepreneurs, everyone's killing it doing real estate. I've got to get into this. 
It wasn't so much peer pressure. It was just like I wanted to earn a lot of money very quickly. And I had a lot of friends who were very successful at earning a lot of money very quickly with real estate. So I said, well, if they can do it too, so can I. Paul, talk to that a little bit. I mean, you now have a business where you coach people doing real estate. All of us on this podcast right now jumped into real estate. And it sounds like we all jumped into it fairly quickly. Tell us about some of the mistakes newbies make when they're getting into the real estate game. When they're first getting started, the the probably the most common problem I hear is the reverse of what we're talking about is that they wait for way too long and they have analysis paralysis and they, they overthink it. Now we're going to tell you these cautionary tales during this episode of our examples of how we probably went into it too quickly, or we made mistakes. Most of the it's impossibly naive is the perfect, perfect title for starting off in this because you just simply cannot know it all when you start. So the advice that I tell people is to follow along at the speed of instruction because you I don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you don't know until you start getting into the steps. And so you go through a pattern of activity that someone is guiding you through. And when you get to the next step, the next step becomes more obvious. Gwen, speak to that. I mean, did you jump in too quickly now that you're looking back? Or as Paul says, is it the kind of thing where you kind of have to jump in and then figure it out as you go? I mean, I think probably out of all of the previous stories that we've told so far, I probably did the most research. I started looking into real estate as an investment in early 2015, late 2014, I ran across Paula Pant's blog and was looking at her crushing it in Atlanta and was like, oh yeah. And then I met Paula and we talked through a whole bunch of things. And I learned so much from her during that that session that we had. And then I went and implemented those strategies when I was looking for real estate. And it probably took me another year or so, 18 months to actually find a house to buy. I I mean, that wasn't without lack of trying. I had like three offers fall through before I got my first one and I moved a couple of times. I would say that there is definitely something to be said for just jumping right in and learning as you go. But I don't know, researching beforehand is really helpful, but it, it doesn't teach you everything, right? I think the best teacher is experience in this case. Do you feel like it protected you at all? I know that your first and main rental experience wasn't the best in the world. I feel like I was able to avoid really common mistakes, but then I made completely different mistakes that I wasn't warned about. Like? Well, like I bought a property that was meant to meet the 1% rule. It almost met the 2% rule. So I did really well there, but I made the mo- the mistake of emotionally buying a house. It was beautiful. I fell in love with the house as it is and not being like, well, this is just four walls where it's going to make me money. I didn't buy in the best neighborhood. I really, I had moved to a new town and bought a house, you know, six months later. So I really underestimated the effect of a location on a rental property. I thought, oh, you know, this is, this is good enough, right? Well, good enough isn't good enough. You need to have the the best possible location you can. And I didn't do that. I didn't screen tenants. You know, like I, I just, I made a whole bunch of really stupid mistakes. I, I didn't make several other mistakes, which helped in the end. Jail, talk about some of the mistakes you made. Again, your situation was a little bit different in the beginning because you were looking at a place to live in as opposed to an investment. Looking back, what do you think your main mistake was? Well, I think the main mistake in my case, and I think I see it a lot today, was just being swept up in the flow that, of course, you need to buy something. Of course, you need to own. Of course, that's better than renting. I was renting a, an apartment that suited me perfectly. I liked it. It was inexpensive. It allowed me to get on with my career and the rest of my life with no problems. But at the time in Chicago, and I'm dating myself now, this is 1979, and what I see today just shows what goes around comes around, the same old, same old. The real estate market in Chicago, where I lived, was just red hot, and nothing was hotter than condos. And I had a good college friend, uh, buddy of mine, who was just hot to buy a, buy something. 
I kept hearing that was the thing to do. And instead of really thinking it through, whether it fit me, I just let myself get drawn into that, in, into that bandwagon. And instead of doing my own due diligence, I thought, oh, my buddy Steve has done it. Oh, his father, the banker, has done it. Oh, you know, this developer, of course, he'll know how to fix up this old building. And that's, again, the impossible, impossibly naive thing. So the very opposite from what Paul was saying, that, you know, people are, are paralyzed by too much analysis. I did zero analysis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just said, oh, okay, I'll hop on this train. You know, what could possibly go wrong? I'd like to carry on with that a little bit, this idea of whether you're buying your own personal property to move into or investment property. What JL just said there was having somebody else do something, relying on somebody else and abdicating responsibility almost in your mind when you're making these decisions. I think that is that is the, the mistake that I have most commonly made in, in my investment experience. I don't, I don't know how many I've done at this time, somewhere between three and 400 transactions, and I have lost money on some of them. And I can say to almost no exception, every time that I lose money, it's because I abdicate responsibility and think somebody else is going to make a good decision on my behalf instead of either making the decision myself or effectively delegating a certain task to somebody and then checking in on them like a manager of a business should. You know, Paul, it's an interesting but tangential point you're talking about the fact that you have made mistakes before, right? You've had real estate go bad. One thing that I seem to see in my mind that maybe separates someone who eventually becomes a very successful real estate investor versus someone who gets in and gets out is how bad that first project is. How was your first project, Paul? Was it fairly successful? Yeah. I had a couple of small surprises, but nothing that kept me from profitability. And it actually gave me wind in my sails to, to like, this works. I did the Burr method that, that is commonly referred to as coined by bigger pockets and it, it worked. And I thought, okay, let's do this again. And so I, I just built momentum. And I think contrary point would be my uh, Gwen's experience is when you get into a bad first experience that colors your, your, your opinion of that probably disproportionate to reality. Yeah. Gwen, I'm wondering your opinion on that. I mean, if that first experience had gone really well, do you think you'd still be in real estate today? Probably, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's odd, but it's. I think it's a it's a good point. Hey, I had my first experience was a very bad one, as the as the book recounts. But then I went on to in, invest in real estate with my eyes a little more wide open, and I had better experiences. But ultimately, I stepped away from it after a couple of years for two reasons. One, it was just way too much like work. I think that's, and I'm sure Gwen, I see Gwen laughing here, and I'm sure I'm sure she can relate to this, but, I, you know, you read some of the stuff that's out there, and it makes it sound like it's so easy to be rolling in money from real estate, and people just don't realize how much knowledge, but also how much ongoing effort that it really takes even to get the ball rolling. But then the reason I ultimately stepped away from it, in addition to that, was when you're investing in real estate, at least back in those days, and there was no internet, you wind up getting to know other landlords, other people investing in it. And everybody had a horror story about tenants. And I so far hadn't, for all the problems I had with that first property, my I, I didn't have any problem with the tenants I had. Sometimes I had trouble getting tenants. I didn't have any problem with the tenants, but everybody else I knew doing it had incredible horror stories around that subject. And I knew that I wasn't smarter than them or more savvy or more experienced. I just knew my time in the barrel hadn't come yet. And I figured I'm going to get out of the barrel before it does. And that's exactly the way it goes. And if you're an active real estate investor and you're owning properties, it's not a matter of if, but when you're going to have... Yes complications. You're going to have that terrible tenant. You're, you're, the likelihood of being sued is pretty high. These are realities of owning in real estate. And so the question, anybody listening to this, if they're either in the business already or thinking about getting into it, is figuring out if your personality is well suited for real estate. Because I do think it takes a personality uh, type and a, a set of goals that are in line with what you want to do, because there's a continuum between a passive investment and a business in real estate, actively owning real estate kind of straddles those two. And you need to find on that continuum where it makes sense for you. 
Yeah. And my problem was, is that I am honestly super nice and super trusting, like <laughs> impossibly naive, right? I, I always paid my rent on time. My rent was my first priority, right? Like I wanted to do right by the landlords, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of their house for them. Right. And it was a huge shock to me to realize that I was one of the rare renters. I ran across so many people who did not have that kind of care for either the place that they were living or their landlord. And it blew my mind and also blew up my wallet. Gwen, do you think you could do it better now? I mean, we're talking about personality type, but now you've been through it, right? You're a veteran in that sense. Do you think you could go and do it now if you needed to? I mean, if it was my only option, I could do it. But I am rather conflict avoidant and even running somebody's background information on them to get a background check just felt invasive to me. And like, there's just some sort of mental block that I, I didn't want to screen them. You know, I wanted to take them at their, I want, I wanted to give them a chance and you can't, you can't afford that as when you're running a business. Maybe if I were running a charity, I could do that, but not as a business. There's something very interesting about housing. When you talk about somebody's house and, and where they live, it's a very personal experience. It's probably one of their biggest expenses and one of their biggest investments. However, from a society's point of view, there's this obligation that you take care of somebody in their house and that we don't uh, prey upon somebody who is in their house. It's a very person. It's what is what we call home. And there's a lot of protections in place for tenants and for people who buy properties as a consumer to prevent them from the powers that be that might try and take advantage of them, whether they be real or imagined. So it's a very interesting conversation when you hear about this personality type. Our, our government our, in, in jurisdictions change, and but there's just this underlying protective nature that you got to be aware of as a landlord that you have the, the law maybe on your side in some cases, but the spirit of the transaction oftentimes is in the advantage of the person who's living in the property. J.O. Gwen made a good point that she kind of realized that her personality type probably wasn't the best for being a landlord and doing real estate. It sounds like you had a harrowing experience, your first experience, and yet you jumped back in and eventually did have some rental properties. What eventually made you decide that you were done with it and it was time to move on? Well, again, it was the matter of I it was hearing these horror stories about tenants and I knew my time was coming. And it was just now not how I wanted to spend my time. I, I was more interested in focusing on my career. And as Paul pointed out, you know, real estate investing, it's not like buying an index fund where you can buy it and then you're done. It requires ongoing attention from you. And even if you hire professional managers, you have to find that and then manage those managers. So even setting it up as some people have done to make it as passive as possible still requires more effort than I was willing to do. Interestingly, I can look back, particularly in Chicago, where I was investing at the time, and I could see what happened to the neighborhoods I was, I was in. And there's almost no question if I'd followed that path rather than focusing on my career as an example, I would be money ahead today just because of the gentrification and, and uh, the explosion in value. But of course, you could see a little bit of that coming at the time, but certainly not what actually transpired. So no regrets, but yeah, it just didn't, doesn't suit my, my temperament. It's not how I want to spend my time. We are talking with Gwen Murs, Paul Thompson, and JL Collins and discussing real estate mishaps. This is the Earn and Invest podcast. I'm Doc G. We'll be back in a moment. By the time you hear about exciting new investments, it feels like Wall Street has already beaten you to the punch. Crypto? You really want to buy it at $50,000? SPACs? 74% are trading below their IPO. But there's a new investment that's just starting to pick up steam. In a crazy twist, it's one of the oldest asset classes in history, but it's finally breaking out into the open. It's art. Art has always been seen as a plaything of the wealthy, like yachts and fifth homes. But it's done much more than just act as something pretty to look at. It's been making many of the rich even richer this whole time. How much? 
Contemporary art prices nearly tripled S&P returns from 95 to 2020. And thanks to a recently enacted law, this prestigious asset class is finally available to everyday investors. Masterworks is the first platform to bring art from artists like Basquiat, Banksy, and Monet to the portfolios of everyday investors. They've got more than 200,000 members, and demand keeps exploding. Luckily, they've given me 85 passes to skip the waitlist. Head to masterworks.io slash EAI to secure your spot. That's masterworks.io slash EAI today. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Let me reintroduce you. We are here with Gwen Mers from the Fiery Millennials blog, Paul Thompson from the My Freedom Foundry community, and Jail Collins from the Simple Path to Wealth. Gwen, talk about investing. You know, the thing about real estate that always got me interested in it is I always found it to be a nice diversification play away from the stock market. You ever worry that maybe your wealth is too concentrated? Yeah, I do. It was it was nice to have that something that was real, right? Like I could live in it, I could touch it. It it existed. You know, my the my investments are just numbers on a screen. I I can't hold that money in my hand. So, it was really nice to have that you know, different income stream coming in that wasn't wholly dependent on the market. But now I'm basically just wholly invested in index funds. I hold a smattering of some bonds here and there. But with my newest 401k, I started investing in a REIT. So I'm, I'm still I'm trying to get that that real estate money in there and that that dif- diversification, but not actually having to manage it myself. Paul, talk about that. Gwen mentioned REITs; those are real estate investment trusts. It's a way of having some real estate in your portfolio without the hands-on management. If you're like us three here, besides you on the podcast, who've delved into real estate and maybe are deciding that it's not exactly for them, mm-hmm. is there an easy button? Are there some easier ways to invest to still get that piece of the asset allocation without putting in as much time and effort? That's a really interesting question. And I think absolutely the right question that any investor should be taking on when they're looking at investing their own capital. It's what do I want from this capital? Do I want growth? Do I want cash flow? Uh, do I want to, um, to a higher return, but higher risk? Uh, how much time do I want to put into it? And the the interesting thing about that real estate offers is that you can do pretty much any combination of that that you want. And you can just do the passive investment thing. If you just think, you just have, you just believe in the performance of a real estate investment trust for which you are a completely passive investor, just like an index fund, then you can get exposure to that real estate market, which is usually a smaller submarket of the greater real estate market, unlike the index fund, which is usually, you know, or can be very broad based, right? There, I don't know of any real REITs that are completely broad based and have a, a property in every city, city in the country that doesn't exist, but you can still get a very broad experience and exposure to the real estate market. And you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture the appreciation play. And that's all you're doing there. Just like when you're buying blue chip stocks that don't have dividends, you're just banking on appreciation. But what's funny is if you were to tell somebody, a real estate investor, you know, you don't buy on appreciation, just don't do that. That's all you do with index <laughs> investments that have no dividend. So you want growth over there. In, in the appreciation play. But if you want cash flow, then you look at other alternatives like going into, into real estate or buying into a business that actually pays you some sort of dividend back in. JL, you are known through the simple path to wealth as well as your blog to be a champion of VTSAX, the single index fund that tracks the US market. Have you ever felt the need to add back in real estate to your portfolio? I mean, it obviously was part of your portfolio years ago. Now there's some easier ways to do it without being a landlord. Do you ever feel that pull to get back in, even if it's with something like a REIT? You know, it's it's interesting. When I first started my blog in 2011, my portfolio was made up of, of three funds. It was made up of VTSAX, which is Vanguard's total stock market index fund, and that was 50% of it, and then 25% of it were bonds and BBTLX, and the other 25% was in REITs, 
And I think there was a total REIT market index fund, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a number of years. And along about 2015, I wrote a post called Stepping Away from REITs. And that simply meant that I got rid of the REIT fund and I rolled that money into VTSAX. And the reason was I was holding the REITs mainly as an inflation hedge. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized that holding general stocks is also a good inflation hedge. In fact, it's statistically as good as holding REITs. And so what I was really doing was overweighting my portfolio in one economic sector of the, of the country, which was real estate. And I had no real interest or intention of doing that. I had no real belief that real estate was going to outperform energy or technology or what have you. So that's why the REITs no longer made sense. I think when you own VTSAX, you own virtually every publicly traded company in the United States. It's hard for me, and that includes REITs, by the way. So it's hard for me to think about how I could possibly be more diversified. I mean, I could be more diversified in bonds, and I do still own some bonds. I could be more diversified maybe going internationally, but that's pretty broad diversification. So I don't feel any particular need to diversify beyond that. I think that like now my diversification in real estate is actually owning a house, but it's not an investment property. It's a property for us to live in. I don't necessarily see us making money off of this house, but it, it could happen, right? And we do have money tied up in this house just with the basic, you know, down payment and putting mortgage and getting equity from it. So I kind of consider that as a diversification. It's a very poor investment, but it is where I have money tied up. Paul, I feel like we've addressed some of the most obvious myths of real estate investments. One is that it always works, right? So clearly it doesn't always work. Uh, the other is jail was talking about is you know, that it is a must have for diversity or diversification of your asset allocation, but clearly there are other ways to diversify your asset allocation. I think one of the other big myths is that if you do real estate, somehow you're not going to pay taxes or you're going to pay a lot less taxes. Talk to me about the tax benefits because anyone who's failed at real estate, or maybe I shouldn't say failed, but anyone who's gotten into real estate and then gotten out of real estate realizes that the taxes don't exactly go away. Right. It, it depends on a lot of situations here. So the, the the two most obvious tax advantages that jump to mind are what they call a section 121, which is when you buy your personal property. And when you sell it later on within, within certain limits, it's tax-free. And if you're doing live-in flips, depending on the values, you can do that almost perpetually every two or three years and, and not pay taxes. But the other one, when it comes to an investment grade, uh, um, property is depreciation. And I think that's what you alluded to before is you had these properties and you had this basically paper losses from the depreciation of that, that you are, you are required to take from the IRS. It's not, it's not an option. You must take it. And, but what, what's sneaky about depreciation is you have to recapture it at the end when you sell. And that's a big surprise to a lot of people because it basically lowers your basis on the property. So yes, you can avoid taxes for a while, but all you're doing is kicking the can down the road, much like, much like putting money into a, an IRA that's not a Roth, right? Just a traditional, you're just kicking the can down the road. However, there is a strategy involved where you can continue, in, at least in the US, we can do a 1031 exchange. And you up, with current law, you can. there's no limit on it, but there's probably going to be some sort of limit coming soon where it's similar to the 121 where you can't pass it forward forever. After a certain number, you've got to pay taxes. But as it stands now, you don't have to pay taxes when you do a 1031 of a like kind exchange. And then if you pass away, you have a stepped up basis. And, and so you can get away with not paying taxes. Right, right. By this. dying. But by there dying. Is but let's be clear with operations this. here. There's <laughs> death involved in the process because at some point you hit 70 or 80. And let's say you want to sell those properties and cash yeah. out. Then you're going to pay a huge amount of taxes based on depreciation. Well, there's that saying, you know, right? There's two facts about life. You can't avoid it, death and taxes. Yeah. In this case, it's death or taxes. So <laughs> there, there is a path towards putting an or in there, but only your, you, you don't get the benefit of not paying the taxes. It's just your, your, your heirs. Don't, you, you don't pay taxes during your lifetime, I guess would be the, the, the argument there. JL, you experienced some of this uh, depreciation surprise, didn't you? Yeah, I sure did. You know, when I, when I bought that uh, Chicago condo, 
I bought it as my personal residence. And then my circumstances changed pretty quickly. Namely, I got married. Another reason, by the way, to keep renting, it's a whole lot easier to transition when you don't have to sell something. And so I converted the condo into a rental. Now, uh, the amount of rent I could collect was not nearly enough to cover my expenses. I mean, it was about half of what my expenses were. So I was hemorrhaging cash every every month. And in those days, I don't, Paul, you can, you can probably elaborate on this. I, I don't think this is still possible today. But in those days, you could elect to take accelerated depreciation which is exactly what it sounds like. You could depreciate your asset even faster, which of course gave you a bigger tax benefit at the time. And so I needed every every possible life preserver I could get in this situation. So of course, I elected accelerated depreciation, not at all understanding <laughs> what came at the end of the rainbow. And so I had bought this place for $45,000. It hemorrhaged cash for oh, six, seven years. And then I managed to sell it for $40,000, which was what I owed on. I only lost $5,000 and I'm okay. And until it came time to do my taxes. And of course, my cost basis was not $45,000 at that point. I think it had gotten down to $25,000. Up come the tax man. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize it. It adds up quickly. You can end up spending thousands and thousands of dollars on taxes. Gwen, let's talk about our community. Personal finance, certainly financial independence. How do people react when you say, hmm, maybe you should think twice about real estate? Do you get some negative blowback? I mean, it depends on how strongly I come across, right? If I say all real estate sucks, nobody should invest in it, <laughs> I'm going to get blowback, right? But rightfully so, because they're it doesn't all suck. You know, it isn't the worst. But if I phrase it from, hey, I just want to let you know that people are going to tell you it's a great investment. I want to let you know that this could go wrong. And it's okay that if it does, you're not a complete failure. But I want to be, you know, the voice of reason and logic here. And don't, I'm not going to tell you it's a wonderful experience that you're just going to sit back and thousands of dollars are going to roll into your pocket each month. You know, they're like, JL said there's going to be work involved. And so I hope that when people talk to me about real estate, that they come away with a more realistic uh, expectation as to what's going to, what could happen. Yeah. According to the title of JL's new book, actually, it's quite fashionable nowadays <laughs> to, to, to lose money at real estate. So you're, you're right on trend. Well, you know, I just, I just like to follow in his footsteps. You know, he warned me about real estate before I got into it. I didn't listen. And, you know, that's, that's what happens. Is that actually the truth? Did, did you actually warn her? Well, you know, I, I actually, I don't remember that. I'll take her word <laughs> for it. But what I was going to say is when that's why I decided to write the book, mm -hmm. the new book. <laughs> so, Paul, I remember you and I interviewing Coach Carson for like one of the first episodes mm -hmm. of What's Up Next. And one of the points he made was actually when people tell him they're interested in real estate, he actually tries to talk them out of it first. Do you take a similar approach? Like when someone comes to you and says, hey, dude, I got to do real estate. You start talking to me, you realize that this is the first they're really thinking about it. Do you have a little bit more of a pessimistic look? So the way I approach it is, what are your goals? What do you want out of this? What brought you to the decision to even think about looking into real estate? And that usually helps me inform me about their thought process and what they're after. And then it's like, let's, let's look at our suite of options. Real estate is just an option out there, right? You can do uh, business. You can go into uh, stocks, bonds. I mean, crypto, if you want to, there's a lot of different things to go out there and be involved in. What do you want to do? And so, yes, I wouldn't say I uh, ring the bell for real estate, but it is what I happen to be have an expertise in. I don't in those other items I just mentioned. So when it comes time for people to ask me for help, I, I do not try and dissuade or persuade them. I try and get back into what they want. And that I think is usually the problem and why people get in trouble is they don't know really what they want. They just have this experience of, I need something. So I, I feel like this might solve my, my problem. And I will say that I, even though I didn't walk away with tons of money in my pocket or, you know, a nice cash flow each month, I, I don't regret getting into real estate at all because it taught me a lot about who I am and how I want to approach things. 
And what were, you know, where, where's my limit for making money? That knowledge that I acquired is, is priceless. And it's, you know, kind of a trite thing to say, but it's true because while I was soured on the idea of real estate for like three years after that experience, it did help me when looking at houses to buy with my partner and, you know, evaluate, is this you know, a money pit or is this a solid house with good bones? So it, it does help in the end, but I just, you know, didn't make a ton of money off of it. I, I was just going to say, following up with Paul's comments that, Paul, I'll bet that most of the people that you ask, what are your goals? They may not say it, but in the back of their mind, the answer is easy money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm looking for easy money. And I've been told real estate is easy money. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that. Most people don't actually know what their goals are, right? And you have to kind of really, I think that's what a coach um, or a consultant in any sort of business activity is useful for is to really get really clear on your desired outcome. What do you want? I I actually have like a a draft format. It's like a 90 day goal. And the, the D in draft stands for what is your desired outcome? I want you to draft out and vision the next 90 days and a lot of times those nine days did not include making, doing a whole bunch of work it requires to accomplish the desired outcome. And if that's the case, then we need to reset expectations because it's very unlikely you're going to get uh, amazing results without putting in the work. It's not just a matter of, of having them define their goals, but having them understand what a realistic goal is. That's right. Right. So, and it's not easy money as I'm sure you disabuse people of. JL, our friends Bryce and Christy from Millennial Revolution are pretty famous for talking against real estate and not just investment real estate, but actually owning a home. Do you feel like the case is different when we're talking about a house to live in versus a house to rent out and make money on? Well, you know, Christy is wrote the foreword to my book, and and I asked her to do that, and she very graciously complied. And, and I said, now, Christy, there are two rules. Rule number one is you can't use the term homeowner, which is her favorite <laughs> favorite term for people who can't wait to buy a house. With, with a B, right? With yes. a B. Yeah. Homeowner is yeah. <laughs> in the sexual reference and being hot for homes. And I said, so that's rule number one. You can't <laughs> use that term. And rule number two is understand that this is a cautionary tale. This doesn't say never by real estate. So now I managed to forget your question. <laughs> Me too. No. <laughs> I was just saying, is it different for kind of investment grade real estate versus buying a home to live in? Sure. I, I think it's very different in terms of how you approach it. One of the reasons that my condo didn't convert well into an investment is it wasn't bought with investment parameters in mind. Gwen mentioned that she bought her investment close to 2% instead of the 1% rule. So you have to think about your real estate differently than you're probably going to think about where you where you want to live. Yeah. And that was one of the things that really saved my bacon at the end is buying so well at the beginning, even if it was in a bad location, the house itself looked great on paper. So with the all of the things that I had to do to the house, I actually made it even more attractive to buy. And so I was able to to get rid of it fairly quickly and walk away with money in my pocket. And I only did that because I was able to buy so well at the beginning. We're talking with Gwen Mers, JL Collins, and Paul Thompson about housing, buying mishaps. This is the Earn and Invest podcast. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G. Have you been listening to the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson? My friend and former college football player, Chad Carson, talks real estate in the most understandable and relatable ways. He has two types of episodes, one in which he interviews experts that tell you the tips and tricks. This is proof of concept, real life people out there just like you and I who are making real estate work for them. And then he also has episodes where he breaks it down, tells you how to use real estate, goes through point by point and step by step how to get ahead. 
It is an amazing podcast. I highly suggest you take a listen. Look, if you're new to real estate, this is definitely the place to go. But if you've been involved in real estate for a long time, here's where you can sharpen the saw and learn more. Check them out at CoachCarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com. It's the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. Take a listen. You won't be sorry. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. We are back with Gwen Mers, the fiery millennial, Paul Thompson, the host of Ready Investor One podcast, and JL Collins, whose new book is forthcoming, How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable. Gwen, let's talk about home buying the second time around. You recently bought a house to live in, not an investment property. How was that different? And did you feel more prepared? I felt so much more prepared to buy this house. My partner was the first, is the first time that they've bought a house. And so I was able to answer tons of questions that otherwise we would have just peppered the poor real estate agent with and give reasons for why that is and and kind of the background for different things that we should be looking at, why I would immediately say no to a house or why I would like be like, yeah, okay, we could go look at that one. So I feel like that process really, really, really helped us make a good decision this time around. But I will say buying a house just because you like it and it looks like you could be something that you can live in is so much easier than having to process all those stupid numbers, you know, the <laughs> ROI and, you know, the 1% rule and does it meet this rule and does it do this? Like, who cares? Do you like the house? Yeah. Okay, great. Go look at it. Jail, we know of the storied Kabanda, your current abode. Do you see yourself buying any more real estate for personal reasons in the future? Yeah, so just so your listeners understand, Cabanda is a is a beach cottage that we own on the shores of Lake Michigan in Wisconsin. So it's a vacation home. I guess we're in sort of the odd position of the only real estate we own is a vacation home. Most people have that as a second home. We are otherwise COVID permitting. We are otherwise nomadic. So with COVID in spring of 2020, we were driven to ground and we have been at the cottage at what we call Kabanda ever, ever since, but that was never the intention for it. And I've kind of been surprised at how much I've enjoyed being settled. And I'm also getting up in years and we had already been thinking maybe at some point our traveling days are going to come to an end and we want to be proactive about where we're going to be when that, when that happens. So now as we travel and we intend to get back out on the road this fall, we're, we're traveling with at least half of an intention of what about here? Would this be a place we'd want to buy a house and, and settle? So yeah, I could see a time coming where, where we're going to do that. When it happens, I don't know. Well, on your travels, you know, you're always welcome to stay with us in St. Louis. I appreciate that. <laughs> And and be careful what you offer. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, tell us a little bit about the housing boom that we're in currently. Uh, is this a good time to buy? I mean, it seems like prices are high around the country. I'm sure there's some places where they aren't, but certainly in Chicago, uh, things aren't cheap. Yeah, so buying for investments. Let's talk about, make sure we're talking about that versus buying for a, an individual, you know, personal residence and you're looking to buy things based on the fundamentals of the valuations. So 
I'm a big proponent of <laughs> Glenn. Like, ah, it takes a little work, right? I have this little thing that I wrote that yeah, you have to, you know, kiss a, a, a hundred frogs before you find your prince. And that's the kind of game that I play. And that's the kind of game that anybody who wants to buy an investment property should be playing is you're not going to buy the first thing you come across because right now the, it's a seller's market and it's most people can sell for a premium over what the property is actually worth or what makes sense for the, the, the rational investor. So you just don't get caught up in the exuberance of what everybody wants, but then know the fundamentals. And I won't go into the fundamentals here for the sake of everybody's time and energy here, but do the research that we all talked about doing on the front end that knows that you know what a, a going cap rate is for the investment that you're looking for. And so that makes sense. So we bought our our house six months ago, which is, you know, right in smack dab in the middle of this superheated market. And I'll tell you what, if you have a property with serious structural issues, now is the time to dump it and run. <laughs> if I could follow up on that was exactly what I was going to say in response to Paul's comment. You sort of beat me to it. Cabanda, this vacation house we have, has serious problems. We knew that when we bought it. It's one of the reasons we got it cheap and it's just a vacation house. If we had to tear it down, it's not the end of the world. But the thought did occur to me as I hear stories of people buying things with no contingencies, with no inspection reports. I mean, it's the market is so hot and it's that way around here that if there were a time to unload this thing, now is now is the time because any inspection report of this is going to read like a Stephen King novel. Yeah, you've had foundation issues, you've oh. had plumbing issues. Then you have to replace the roof too. Like, I, what I what haven't you touched in this house? Would probably be a better question. <laughs> you know, you know, Gwen. That's <laughs> there's a funny story there when we were looking at it with the realtor, whose name was Mike. Mike turned to me at one point and he said, "You know, JL, one good thing about this house is you don't have to worry about what's wrong with it. Everything's wrong with it. Everything <laughs> is the roof bad. Yes. Is the foundation bad? Yes. Is the plumbing bad? Yes. Is the electric bad? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you name it. And, and that's, that's the way we approached it. And we bought it at the right price. And, and it, so far our surprises have all been pleasant, mainly because our expectations were so awful, but there are some of these things that are not repairable. We've done a fair amount of foundation work, for instance, but, to really fix the foundation completely would mean jacking up the house, ripping out the perimeter foundation and, and redoing that. And of course, you can do anything with enough money, but that just wouldn't make any financial sense. So this house is going to be sold to the next owner, whenever that is with that foundation problem. And that will affect the value of it. But that's okay because we bought it at the right price. So. Well, and I'd say that's the difference between buying in, you bought it in 2018 or 2019? 2017. I wow. Think. Okay. Has it been that long? Yeah. Holy cow. So that's the difference already, between buying in 2017 and buying in 2020 or 2021, right? Exactly. You got the right price for this house. You got to be able to inspect it. You knew what was coming. These houses that are on the market now, you're lucky if you get to have an inspection and it's being sold as if there's no problems. There was this house that was on the market that we looked at that just the closer you looked at the pictures online, the worse it got. It needed <laughs> tuck pointing. The bathrooms were original from the 1950s. So gosh, only knows what was hiding behind those walls. You know, it was completely outdated. There were so many things wrong with this and it was being sold as if it was move in ready. And that's what they were they were trumpeting us. They're like, look, you can just move right in. We redid the floors. And it's like, cool, but you need a new roof. You need all these other things. It is very difficult to find a house that doesn't have a huge amount of problems and be able to go in with your eyes open because things move so fast now. Yeah, I'm sure at some point I'm going to look back on this particular moment of, of the housing market and say, I, I missed my opportunity. <laughs> but but, but we, love, we love the place. We love being on the lake and we're not willing to get rid of it yet, so... Well, and the pictures that you post on Facebook of the sunrises and sunsets are just absolutely gorgeous. So the rest yeah. of us are benefiting too. And so when I tear the place down, I'm living in a tent. I'll still have <laughs> As long as on social media, we feel like you're living your best life. Reality doesn't really matter. <laughs> All right. So let, let's round this up. I'm going to answer this question myself first, and then I'm going to go through each one of you, starting with Paul. 
What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone looking to get into investing in real estate? If I were to answer that question myself, I would say accept complications, not expect complications, because expecting is one thing. But I think really to be a good real estate investor, especially if you want to be a landlord, you have to accept the complications that occur and manage them and move on. I think if you're able to do that, you can be a good real estate investor. Paul, someone comes to you. Is there one piece of cardinal advice you give that sums it up? In the spirit of the context of what we talked about so far, they've listened to this. I would take away finding the balance between taking imperfect action and analysis paralysis, because that's that's the sweet spot. And finding that sweet spot and the wisdom to discern the two is really the le- the, the lessons you need to learn in order to make the right decisions based on the dynamics of the up and down market, COVID this, COVID that. You have to adjust to the the given market and know how to thread that needle. Yeah, I think that's great advice for any investment, real estate or otherwise. Gwen, the one piece of advice you'd give on real estate, someone comes up to you and says, I'm definitely doing this. What would you tell them? Research repair costs ahead of time. It is shockingly expensive to get a three-story house repainted. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And with COVID and supply shortages and worker shortages, everything is a lot more expensive than you thought it was going to be. It's only gotten worse. I'm so glad I don't own that house anymore. (laughs) And JL, bring it home for us. If someone comes and tells you they're interested in real estate besides throwing VTSAX at them and telling them to forget it. Is there one piece of, of advice you would give them? Well, now you just took apart and took away my one piece of advice. But I, think, I think, Doc, it, it, it's harder to do better than yours, actually, to expect complications. I, I would not have been able to put it in those words until you said them, but that's exactly right. Because even if you don't make all the mistakes that I made in, in my new book that, that I outlined, if you're, if you're going to be a landlord, if you're going to own investment property, there are going to be complications. There are going to be problems. There are going to be difficulties. That's the nature of the beast. And if you're expecting those and you realize that's, that's part, of the, part of the nature of the beast that, you're, that you've engaged with, then I think they're going to be a lot easier to deal with. And when it comes to your personal property, as we were talking about earlier in this red hot market we're in now, in the red hot market that I was in in 1979 when I was buying that ill-fated condo, don't get swept up in in the moment. Don't don't feel panicked into buying. Don't let yourself be stampeded or panicked into buying. This too will pass, and and if it passes like Chicago condo, condo market did, it's going to pass with a with a thud, <laughs> and and things will be available much less expensively. I don't think that you can expect to have a ribeye steak left in a cupboard in the middle of July in an unair conditioned space, but I think that you can accept the fact that it happened. So putting this all together, as I think about our conversation, I don't want people to walk away from this thinking that real estate is a bad investment. I think what I've gleaned from this is it's a, it's really about mindset. And one thing I've learned over this time of COVID in the last few years is Maybe at the beginning of when I started investing in real estate, my mindset was prepared for the complications that were coming. But as we've gone further, it's less so. And therefore, I've decided to liquidate a lot of my real estate because things change and we as investors change. I want to thank you guys for being on the show and end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you online. Paul, let's start with you. What's going on and where can we find you? The best place to find me is at my community, My Freedom Foundry. It's either the free of a free Facebook group on uh, a free Facebook group, and then I have a website as well. And then what's up next for me is I am in. Strangely enough, I'm in buy mode. I am in. I have created the ability to find properties at discounts, and then I can now sell them at, at, at crazy premiums. So that's what I'm doing. And Gwen, what's up next in your life, and where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me on my blog at fieryMillennials.com or on any social media handle that has some sort of combination of fiery millennial or fiery millennials. I am just hanging out here in St. Louis, enjoying my new house and time with my partner because we can't do much anything else. So yeah, catch me online. 
And JL, tell us about this book drop. When can we expect to get it and where? Well, so uh, the book, again, is How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable. I'm not entirely sure when you're going to air this uh, podcast doc, but the book should either be very close to coming out or or already be out at that point. We're public, I'm self-publishing it like I did The Simple Path to Wealth through Amazon, but also through Ingram Sparks, which is a new thing for me. It's how I published the hardcover edition of The Simple Path to Wealth recently. And I understand that facilitates books getting into bookstores and libraries. So hopefully this one will be a little more widely available out of the gate. Anybody interested, they can follow me on jlcollinsnh.com. That's my blog and website. And after the book, my next goal is probably going to be to pawn this cottage off on Paul. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a great plan. (laughs) This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Gwen Mers, Paul Thompson, and JL Collins. That's a wrap. Awesome. That was fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. I feel like... Come on to Paul. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm taking a trip already. I I got a plan. I have to go to Wisconsin now. I have a reason. Jail's like, I've got some swamp land in Wisconsin to sell you. (laughs) I I can stay in the tent outside. (laughs) You're all all welcome to come visit. Well, Doc's already been up there. I've been there. It's it's a nice place. Yeah. I mean, you've got the lake there and the sound of the, the, you know, waves crashing in and, you know... Yeah. It's some oceanfront property in Wisconsin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what it looks like. But yeah, I know the surprises on it have been have been pleasant ones. It's turned out pretty well. And it does it is, it is a nice looking place. It's comfortable to be in, as long as it doesn't fall into the crawl space. Is it, but did the water the water went down, right? It's not nearly as high as it was before? The water so you were here last year it was the last time you were here, right? Well, it's been really more than high. a year. It was two years ago, I think, right? Oh, okay. like yeah, yeah. Well, the water's down significantly. So uh, it was up lapping in our lower deck. When I when we got back here in 2020, in May, uh, you could have moored a boat off off my lower deck. There was no beach anymore. Now we have, depending on the wave action, 20, 30 feet of beach again. So you can hmm. walk the beach. And, right. yeah. We you know, owned... Jim. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's amazing what happens when you set your expectations low enough, how much you can find yourself enjoying something. I had incredibly low expectations about moving to Des Moines. Blew my mind away because they were so low. I had a great time. (laughs) But I didn't want to say that on the podcast because I know there are people who actually do love Iowa for being Iowa. Exactly. I was going to say, I owned... um a house on Lake Michigan and Wisconsin for about three or four years. We bought it, rented it out, eventually did 1031 exchange. Um, but that was one of our worries is the water from Lake Michigan kept on. Cause we had a beautiful beach yeah. to start with. We had a hundred feet of beach and you know, it was the house was well set off, but we watched the water get higher and higher and the beach gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But if you know the history, right. As I know, jail does the, you know, every whatever, 20 years or so, the water comes up really close and then goes back and it kind of ebbs and flows over the decades. Yeah, the thing the thing that's remarkable is that the difference between the all-time low in recorded history and the all-time high is only about six feet. Wow. Hmm. And on a body of water this size, that's nothing. And I didn't so, realize that's it, six feet? Yeah. So when the wow. water was coming up, you know, there are a lot of the locals saying, oh, you know, it's reaching its all-time high. It'll go down again. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, you know, the lake doesn't know it's reaching it. And they were turns out they were right. But the lake doesn't know it's at an all-time high. And, of course, <laughs> historically, this lake has been much bigger than it is and also much smaller. So, you know, there is – when you're living on the lake, there's always, there's always the risk the lake is going to come in. And it did – get high enough to take a number of houses, uh, mostly in Michigan because the the waves are bigger and the weather is heavier there because the weather moves from west mm, to right. Normally. Yeah, normally. Exactly. Can you imagine living on the ocean? Then? Climate change. Oh, like yeah. Lake Michigan's big, but it's not an ocean. 
Well, especially <laughs> with, with global warming and ice melting and sea levels. Nice thing about the Great Lakes is we're something like 550 feet above sea level. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, the rising oceans are not going to affect us. Other things might affect us, but that's not going to be it. Knock on wood. Oh, yeah. knock on wood, yeah. <laughs> knock on skin or something. Yeah. Well, I was going <laughs> to knock on my head, but then my hand was faster. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more – and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.